Well, Brother Nick didn't make it this morning, and um, he uh, he's one of those that's uh, trying to follow our protocol of if um, if we feel like that there's a reason why you shouldn't be here for the safety of everyone, he, he does that. And uh, he's trying to be the same kind of leader that I want to be and um, trying to be, so I ask you to... Uh, to pray for him, but pray for me this morning. You got a lot of feedback on there, Mr. Mark. Pray for me this morning as I try to um, fill in. He texted me last night and said he wasn't going to um, make it this morning, so I'm going to just try to pick up. I'm not really prepared like I like to be, but we're going to do the best that we can. You might remember a few weeks ago I was uh, filling in for Nick while he was on vacation, and um, I preached from the um, letter of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 11 through 13. I'm going to pick up with that again today, and I want to be able to um, try to focus on one point that I didn't get to focus on that morning. And we'll look at what that is. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, and before you stand, I want to give you a little context on this just so that you remember. 1 Timothy is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. He is a pastor that has been left in Ephesus at the only church in Ephesus, a very large church. And he's been left here to set some things in order. Now Timothy is young. He's not someone that you would look at and naturally respect him because he has some age on him. No, he's young and most people will look at Timothy and... Um, and they will not want to respect him as a pastor, if you will. And Timothy has to come into this church that is a church that has leaders that are established in it already, but they're teaching some false doctrine. And when Paul writes First Timothy, he tells him, one of the first things I want you to do, I want you to go in, I want you to address this false doctrine. And then he tells him, not only do I want you to address the false teachers and the false doctrines that are being taught, but I want you to lead the church in a lifestyle of prayer. I want you to teach a church how to pray together. How to come together and lift up kings and governors and all the way down to the lowest of the sinners. I want you to learn to come together and I want you to teach this church how to pray for everyone. So just those two things I want you to think about for just one moment. If you are a young pastor and you have to come into an established church and you have to address teachers that the church has already accepted as teachers, and as a young man, you have to address them on their false doctrine, and you have to address them on all of their false teachings. That right there is one burden that is tough for him to bear. And then you have to come in and you have to teach a group of people who is not natural for them to pray even at home by themselves for the most part, and now you have to teach them and lead them to come together for the importance of prayer. Now the truth of it is, most church members don't understand the importance of corporate prayer or we would be coming together more often and praying together more. And so Timothy has this responsibility to try to persuade these people to come together to pray together, to understand the power in their prayers together. And you see those two things in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he has to teach all of the men and the women in the church how to glorify God in their respective roles that God created man for this role and women for this role. And now Timothy, this young pastor, has to come in and tell 
men, that your role is this, and women, your role is this. And how many of you know that men and women don't like nobody telling them what their roles are? We want our roles to be what I want my role to be, right? So just piling this stuff up on on top of Timothy that he has to take care of. Then he has to set elders into place that are going to teach good doctrine. He has to make sure that they're qualified in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you're familiar with that. And then on top of all of that, Paul tells him, you are responsible for continuing to train yourself in godliness. He actually tells him, you have to be an example before this church in your speech, in your conduct, in all of the things that you do, you have to be the example as a pastor. And so can you begin to at least feel some of the weight that's being laid on Timothy right here as he has to come in as a young pastor to, to teach and to train this church? And Timothy comes in and he has to fight to maintain this because it's not natural for Timothy any more than it's natural for you and I. What comes natural to us is what we want to do. We're selfish in our nature. We're not godly in our nature. And so Timothy is fighting both himself and sinners in the whole of the church to be able to lead them in the way that God would have them to go. And as I told you before, it's no wonder that this is why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, he said, Timothy, have a little wine for thy stomach's sake. For your often infirmities. I mean, it's no wonder why Timothy had the infirmities he had and the ailments that he had. The pressure, the weight of the world, it felt like, was laying on Timothy's shoulders. And so he has these frequent ailments. But Paul ends in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 13. And if you have the means and you're able, we're going to stand and read Paul's ending to Timothy. Now remember, how many of you think that Timothy feels when he gets these commands, he says, oh yeah, I'm up for the task. I can do it. I'm the man for the job. That's not where he falls, right? If anything, Timothy lands on his knees and says, who in the world is sufficient for this? I'm not. And so Timothy, uh, Paul ends this letter to Timothy to encourage him and to exhort him to make sure that he follows this guideline in order to fulfill this task. In 1 Timothy chapter 11, he says this, or chapter 6, verse 11, he says this. But as for you, O man of God, I love that. He don't call him Timothy. He don't say, as for you, young man. He says, as for you, O man of God. I know you have often infirmities. I know you got to drink a little wine just to settle your stomach down. But guess what? You're a man of God. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And then in verse 12, fight, Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in this testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. 
So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, Paul ends this exhortation by reminding Timothy, you are not sufficient for this role. I'm not sufficient for this role. The truth of the matter is, you being called to be like Christ as a Christian, you are not sufficient for that role. You're not. But the good news is this. You, if you have heard the call, remember that's what Paul told Timothy. He said, you have answered the call. Lay hold of eternal life to which you have been called. And you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul tells Timothy, because you've answered the call, and because you have confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior in front of many witnesses, that's why I call you a man of God. That's what qualifies you to be a man of God. Have you answered the call and have you proclaimed and professed that Jesus is Lord in front of many witnesses so that they know this is what your life is now. Christ is now my life. And if so, then you are a man of God. And as for you, O man of God, in verse 11, Flee these things. Pursue these things. And fight, in verse 12, the good fight of faith. So Paul gives Timothy three things. He said, if you are going to stay in this thing, if you are going to keep, to lay hold of eternal life, if you are going to finish this race and make it to the end, it's going to be because you have answered the call, you have professed Christ as Lord. And then as you do that, there are three things that you have to make sure you follow. The first thing, there are some things that you have to flee. That's what I want to focus on today. But then the second thing, there are some things that you must pursue. So if you're going to flee, what does that mean? What does it mean to flee? Run. Run away. So there are some things in your life that you need to be running away from with everything in you. And then there are some things in your life that you need to be pursuing. What does it mean to pursue? To run after. The word comes from a Greek word that means to aggressively chase after. So there are some things that you need to run away from with everything in you. And then there are some things that you need to aggressively chase with everything in you. And then, verse 12, the third thing says, Timothy, you have to fight. Because how many of you know that the things that you're having to run away from are actually the things that your heart wants to do what? Run toward. And the things that you have to pursue, let's look at those for a minute. The things that you have to aggressively chase after, righteousness. How many of you are naturally bent toward righteousness? How many of you are naturally bent toward godliness? Anybody in here naturally bent toward faith, love, steadfastness? What about gentleness? Anyone in here naturally bent toward being gentle? You're just a gentle person. No, these things that we are to aggressively chase are not things that come natural to you. So if you are going to flee the things that your heart wants, and you're going to aggressively pursue the things that your heart don't want, 
then verse 12 says you're going to have to do what? It's going to be a fight. Anybody that tells you that this Christian walk is easy, they are not a Christian. Anybody that tells you that following Christ is a walk in the park, they have never followed Christ. It's a fight. But notice what he says here. Fight the what? It's a good fight. (laughs) It may be a fight, but it's a good fight. You know, all throughout the Word, there are places that tell us, uh, you remember in Ephesians chapter 6, He tells us to put on the what? The whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand and that we may be able to withstand everything that the devil throws at us. And so we learn that it's a fight. No matter where you go in the Scripture, I could take you to many, many places, especially throughout the New Testament. Uh, You remember where Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, I do not run as one, or I do not fight as one that beats the wind. He said, I'm fighting with a purpose. I'm not running like I don't have a race to win. I'm running because I'm going to win the race. And so everything he talks about is the way that he has to discipline himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I think it's somewhere around verse 27, Paul said, I discipline my body and I bring it under control, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now think about what he said right there. I have to discipline my body. I have to bring it under control. See, you have to control self because it is a fight. And if you don't control self, then you are not fighting. And if you do not discipline your body, you will not flee the things that you need to flee. And if you do not discipline yourself and your body, you will not pursue the things that you need to pursue. So here's what I want to say to you this morning. If you are not fighting to stay in this Christian walk, then I question how much of this walk you are really in. Because the walk of following Christ is a fight. But again, it's a good fight. It's a good fight of faith. So this morning I want to go to my favorite book and chapter in all of the Bible. You've heard me preach on this if you've been here for any length of time for a while. But I want to go to Romans chapter 1. And I want to show you what the things are that we must flee. See, we could get into the details this morning and we could say, well, we need to flee stealing. We need to flee addictions. We need to flee lying. We need to flee being... um, uh, walking in lust, and we need to flee adultery, and we need to flee homosexuality, and we need to flee... I mean, we could get into the details, but I want to get down to the root of what causes all of those things. And Romans chapter 1 is where we learn everything that we must flee. And if you can learn to flee this one thing, one thing is what it boils down to. I'm going to give it to you in three steps. But if you can learn to flee this one thing, you are going to be able to walk this walk and fight this fight. Romans chapter 1. 
Let's start reading in verse 18. We're going to go through verse 28. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God's wrath is being revealed, right? You can see it. And it's being revealed against those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here's what's happening. We are suppressing or we are holding down a truth. Alright? So we've got to figure out what that is. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So we can see something very plainly that God is showing to us. And yet, instead of expressing what we see, we suppress it. We hold it down. So what is it? Keep reading with me. Verse 20, um, 20. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what is that saying? Very simple. When you look at creation... When you look at the stars at night, when you look at the moon, when you look at um, the, the mountains, the Grand Canyon, when you look at your children, when you look at anything in creation, you have no excuse of not seeing the eternal power of God and His divine nature. You are without excuse. He has clearly shown you His invisible attributes. Are y'all tracking with me? but instead of you glorifying Him as a God of eternal power, as a God that is divine and holy, and instead of you magnifying Him and worshiping Him for that, you suppress that truth and you look at all of creation and instead of it leading you to worship God, it leads you to worship you. And you look at all this world and you say, it's all for me. And it's all for my enjoyment. And it's all for my pleasure. And you suppress the truth about God. That God created it and He created you to enjoy it, but to glorify Him. He meant for you to stand in front of Grand Canyons, in front of mountains, in front of oceans, and He meant for you to enjoy it, but He meant for it to be the beam of sunshine that you follow up to the source of where it comes from. So when you look at creation, the whole purpose is that you look at the ocean or whatever it is, your children, grandchildren, and you follow that beam of light all the way up to the source of the eternal God and the divine natured God. And you worship Him and you give Him thanks and you honor Him for who He is because we see Him in everything that He has made. But His wrath is against us because we suppress that. Look at verse... Remember, we're without excuse. We see it everywhere. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. How did we know God? We see Him in everything that is created. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. But even though you knew Him, You refused to honor Him. And you refused to give Him thanks. Y'all still tracking with me, right? Say Amen. So here is the problem with mankind. 
the number one thing that we must flee after we've heard the call and after we've made the confession, the number one thing we must flee is our rebellion to refuse God His honor and His thanks. I don't want you to raise your hand this morning, but I just wonder how many people it was a struggle for you to get up and come to church this morning. How many of you it's a struggle for you to to come to prayer service on a Wednesday night? I just wonder how many of you it's a struggle for you to get up and come to Sunday school to learn about God so that you can honor Him and give Him thanks. But I get it. You had a late night. I mean, you need your beauty sleep. Most of y'all out here need a lot more than you're getting, trust me. But, you need your beauty sleep. Now my wife, she's getting all she needs. She needs to back off a little bit. But that's my wife. Brownie points. So, I understand that you think and you justify in your mind, well, I have this going on, I have this going on, and I've got this ball practice, and my kid really needs this, and I've got this, and I've got this. Let me tell you what the root of it really is. The root of it is is that deep down inside of you, you don't want to honor God. And deep down inside of you, you don't want to give Him thanks. That's the root of it. It is a fight for you to flee this because naturally you want to stay in the bed. Naturally, you want to go out and enjoy the sports. Naturally, you want to go to the ocean and to the mountains and to the Grand Canyon. Now, are any of those things bad in and of themselves? No. But if they take honor and thanks away from God, when their primary purpose was to bring honor and thanks to God, then are they bad? You better believe they're bad. Sports are bad at that point. Children are bad at that point. If your children take you away from you honoring and giving thanks to God, your children have just got in between your worship of God and you no longer worship and honor and give thanks to God, but who is your worship and honor and thanks going to? The children. They have become your object of worship. Are y'all tracking with me? Y'all understand this is not my opinion. This ain't a pastor trying to get more people to come to church or Sunday school or prayer service. You understand what I'm giving you is straight from the Word of God, right? Everybody that understands that, say Amen. Alright. So the first thing that we have to flee is a rebellion against honoring God and giving thanks to God. And the reason why is comes from the next verses. Let's keep reading. He says, uh, let's read verse 21 again. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. That word futile means useless. In other words, you were given minds for the capacity to see the creation and honor and give thanks to God. Your minds are meant to lead you to that. But instead, you became useless in your thinking. And now all your minds think about is what makes me happy. And if it makes me happy and it don't offend my conscience, then I will do this. And you became futile in your thinking. That kind of thinking is useless. And not only that, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Literally, your heart became hardened. 
against this. It was darkened where there should have been light. When you look at all of the creation and it points you to God, it's supposed to bring light to your heart to where it leads you to honor and glorify God. But instead, your heart grows dark and you refuse to honor and give thanks unto God. Keep going with me. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This looks wise to you. In other words, for you to do what you think you need to do, it looks wise. We think to ourselves, and I'm not trying to harp on kids in sports, I'm just using this because it's the nearest example that comes to my mind right now. But we justify in our minds and we say, well, they're only here for a little bit of time. We've only got them for right now. Right? And we say to ourselves, we say, well, yeah, but it's just a... It's just a um, it's just a Wednesday night, or it's just a whatever it is. The point being is that we will get in our minds and in our heads, and we will actually justify the fact that it's a good thing for us to do this. And so, claiming to be wise in our decisions, we became fools. We became fools. And that's just one example. If you want a hundred more, I can give you a hundred more of ways that looks like. Keep reading with me. And the reason they became fools is because, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's what you did. You made a terrible exchange. All of these temporary creations were meant to point you to the immortal, eternal, glorified God. And instead, you exchanged this for this. Read it one more time. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. He's just talking about creation right here. Now yes, we can look at this at them making idols in the shape of these things, but he's talking about creation in general. And I'll prove that to you here in a minute. The point being, you traded glory for an image. Now what does that mean? You were made in the image of who? David looked at all of the the stars, and he said, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. So in other words, all of creation is an image that says, look at how glorious God is. When you look at your children and you hold your newborn baby, or your newborn grandbaby, the whole point is to go, wow, look how good God is. That's the whole point. And instead, you stand in front of children, oceans, and ball practices, and ball games, and, and uh, mountains, and Grand Canyons, and wherever, and instead of looking at that creation and saying, look at how glorious God is, you say, wow, look at how awesome that image is. I want the image. Forget the glory one. Forget the one that this reflects. Forget that all this creation is just a glimpse of what He is really like. Forget that. Give me the image. Now does that make much sense? So here's what we have to do. We have to make sure 
that we're not continuing to make that exchange. We have to trade back. And we have to say, you can have the image. Give me the glory. You can have the mortal. Give me the immortal. And those are the contrasts that he's making here in verse 23. God is glory. God is immortal. These things here, they are images. And they resemble mortal. So they're not glory, they're images. They're not immortal, they're mortal. And we trade things that are temporary, things that are uh, mortal, for things that are images. And we trade that, and we would rather have that as opposed to the glory, as opposed to immortal. Now let's just be honest. If I were to stand in front of you today and give you two choices, I said, hey guys, in this hand, if you take it, I have a life here on this earth of absolute pleasure. But after that, there is nothing but wrath for you after that. And in this hand, I have eternal life. Immortal. Nothing but glory. Nothing but joy. And you have those two choices today. You have to make it right now. Who in their right mind is going to say, hey, I'll take this? No one in their right mind. But that is the exchange that we have made as sinners. We say, God... We can see very plainly that you're glorious. We can see very plainly that you're immortal. We can see very plainly that you are divine. And yet, we're not going to honor you and give you thanks for it because God, I want the mortal. That's what I want. Give me the mortal. Give me the temporary. Give me the image. Now how much sense does that make? So the point being, if you're going to flee the things that you must flee, you are going to have to flee your rebellion to refuse God of His honor and His thanks. You are going to have to quit making the trade in this world that says, God, I would rather have the mortal than the immortal. And yet, that is what we do. And if you want to flee something, that is the root of all our sin. That's why people are homosexual. That's why people are adulterers. Because... They don't want the immortal and they don't want His way. I want what I want. I want the lust of my heart. I want the desire of my eyes. And so every sin you look at comes from this root. And if you are going to flee the things that you have to flee, then you better quit refusing God His honor and His thanks and you better quit trading His immortal glory for these mortal images that will not last. And quit justifying it in our mind as if it is actually okay. Let's keep going. Verse um, 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God. What was the truth? He's immortal. He's glorious. He's worthy of honor. He's worthy of praise. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 
What was the lie? You see it next. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What's the lie? The lie is that this stuff and this life is worthy of all my worship, of all my honor, of all my thanks, of all my praise. That's the lie. And because you decided in your heart that you would rather have the impure as opposed to the pure, God said, I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to give you up to it. And let me show you just a little bit of what that looks like in verse uh, 25. I'm sorry, verse um, 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What does that look like? For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is just one example that Paul addresses. You want to know why there are sins like this in the world? It's because in our impure hearts when we want the mortal versus the immortal, this is the way it comes out. It says, I would rather have all that this world and all the pleasures that this world has to offer. And if it has all this to offer me, I'm going to take it. And because you do that, He says here, God lets you have it. You want to know why the world is the way it is? You want to know why men and women cheat on each other in relationships or in, uh, in uh, marriages or no matter what it is? The whole point is, I want what I want. I want the pleasure that my heart desires and I don't want what God wants and I'm going for it. And then you have the sin in the world that you have. Look with me at verse 26. Here's the third thing that you have to flee. The final thing that you have to flee. In verse 26 he says, For this reason God gave them up to dishon- I'm sorry, verse 28. I gave you the wrong verse. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Somebody tell me what the problem is right there. What's our problem? We don't want to acknowledge God, right? Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Here's our problem. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now think about this. This is important. If you're going to understand why this world is the way it is, have you ever questioned, God, why do you let this happen? Anybody ever wondered, God, why why didn't you just stop this? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you stop this person from doing this? And why didn't you protect my marriage? And why didn't you... So on and so on and so on. Well, here's your answer. We didn't want God in our hearts. He said very plainly, God gave us up because we didn't want Him in our hearts. So God gave us up to impure hearts. And then not only did we not want God in our hearts, we didn't want to acknowledge God in our minds. And because of that, God gave us up to a debased mind. What does debased mean? The base is the lowest, right? Debased means the lowest of the low. 
You want to know why people do the things that they do, commit the sins they commit? Because God said, if you don't want to honor me, you don't want to acknowledge me, if you would rather have the mortal than the immortal, if you would rather have the impurity, the impure lust of your heart as opposed to the righteous ways of mine, I'm going to give it to you. Here world, let me show you what a world looks like when you follow your heart. The worst advice anyone has ever given anybody on this planet are these words. Just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Y'all, y'all ever heard that? That's, that's one reason why I hate Facebook the most. <laughs> because if you want to scroll down through there, just go a little far. You won't have to go far. Somebody is trying to help someone with their problems. And here's their advice. Just follow your heart, girl. Just follow your heart. Your heart will never lead you wrong. You are one of the biggest idiots this world has ever seen. The Bible tells us that the human heart is so evil and so deceitful and so wicked, who can understand it? Who can know it? And yet you look at us and you say, just follow your heart. Your heart will never lead you wrong. Your heart will always lead you wrong. But He will never lead you wrong. And so here's the best advice you'll ever receive. Y'all listening? Everybody awake? Best advice you're ever going to receive. Don't ever follow your heart. Ever. If your heart tells you to do something, you want me to tell you what you need to do? Whatever is exactly the opposite. Whatever is the opposite of what your heart tells you to do, do that. You will have a lot better chance at choosing the right path if you go that way. And so I want you to understand that your heart is impure. God has given it over. And the only hope is that He calls you out of this darkness and you profess Christ as the Lord and you follow Him out of the darkness into the light. And the first way you do that is you've got to flee some things. And the things you've got to flee is you've got to flee your refusal to honor and give Him thanks. You've got to get out of that. You've got to quit making this exchange that I would rather have the mortal as opposed to the immortal. And then the last thing I just read to you, you've got to quit having a God-free mind. When I say free, I mean literally God is not in there. I mean literally you don't care what He thinks. When you make your decision, you don't stop and go, God, what do you think about this? And most of us don't. Most of us just follow our heart. This is what I feel like I'm supposed to do. This is what I'm going to do. you got to stop that. Because that's a God-free mind. Look at verse 28 again. Look at what he said. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, Literally, they did not want God and His ways in my mind. He says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to not be done. Let's look at what these things are. What ought not be done. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil. They were covetous. Malice. They were full of envy. Murder. You don't know where murder comes from? They don't want God in their minds. Strife, deceit, maliciousness. You ever wonder why people are malicious? 
They don't want God in their minds. They are gossips. You ever wonder why we like talking about people? Come on, don't get so holier than thou on me this morning. Act like you don't like to get in a little chat session with somebody about somebody else. That's right. You ever wonder why that is? Because your heart loves that. Because it's not God. It's not the way He would direct you. It's not what He would have you do. You ever wonder why people slander others? You ever wonder why people are haters of God? Because they don't want God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. You ever wonder why your children are disobedient parents? Because they're born with hearts that don't want God. I know we like to look at our kids and go, oh, they're perfect. Can I tell you a secret if some of y'all ain't figured this out yet? There ain't nothing perfect about your kids. Nothing other than the fact that they were made in the image of God and there are still some characteristics about them that display that. Anything good at all in them is only because God is still there. That's it. But everything else comes from the fact that they have hearts. They don't want God. They don't want to follow God. They don't want to follow you. How many of you, your kids ever, you ever told your kids to do something, they looked back at you and said, no. And what do you have to do? I'm going to show you no. Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? And so, if that is the case, then we know that in our hearts, in every one of us, we don't want God, we don't want to follow God. And God said, okay, let me show you what a world looks like when people don't want to follow me. When people don't want me in their hearts, when people don't want me in their minds, just turn on the news. Turn on Facebook. It won't take you long to see what a world looks like that does not want God. But now, you have been called out of that darkness. You have been called out of that rebellion, out of that sin, of that dark exchange that you have made. And now Christ has shown you the glory of God. He has said, let there be light. Y'all go with me to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm coming to a close. That means you've only got about 30 more minutes. Maybe. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to read verse 6. Look what it says. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me explain that to you real quickly. You remember when God was uh, creating the world and it was all darkness? How did He make light? He said what? Let there be light. And what happened when God said, let there be light? There was light. Now in the same way that God has given us over to debased minds, 
and given us over to impure hearts and given us over to darkness, that same God can also say, let there be light. And the way that He does that is with the call of the Gospel to see Christ for who He is and what He has done for you and to follow Christ out of this darkness. That's what this verse is saying. Let's read it again. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Literally, you refused to see the glory of God and instead you traded it for the glory of the world. Y'all tracking with me? But then God comes in and He opens your eyes to that when He shows you your sin and He calls you in the Gospel and through the Gospel He speaks to your heart and He says these words, let there be light. And when God says let there be light, what happens? There ain't nothing you can do about it. If God says let there be light, there will be light. Now that you have been called into the light by seeing the face of Christ, you have seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ and in the Gospel and what how deep the Father's love is for us. That's the glory of God. That God would give His only begotten Son for an enemy, an ungodly, rebellious, dark-hearted sinner like me. In the face of Jesus Christ, you have seen the glory of God. And God has said, let there be light. Since there is light that is shown on your heart, O man of God, O woman of God, I'm telling you three things. Flee these things. Flee this rebellion against honoring and giving thanks to God. And fight to come honor Him. Fight to come and give thanks to Him. That that is top priority. And then quit making the exchange that I would rather have the world than the one who made it. And quit having a God-free mind. In every decision you make, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. And if you will fight this fight and flee these things, you are in line to be able to pursue righteousness. Because what comes naturally if you are fighting this fleshly mindset? If you look to God for every decision made, what are you pursuing? Righteousness. If you look for, to God for every decision you make, what are you going to be? Gentle, steadfast. You're going to walk in faith and love. You're going to be pursuing all of the things that the man of God and the woman of God is called to. But again, I'm telling you this morning, church, fight. It's a good fight. But you have to fight. And if you're not fighting to give honor and thanks to God, you're not naturally giving it to Him. If you're not fighting to make sure you don't exchange the world or exchange God for the world, then you are exchanging God for the world. If you are not fighting to make sure that you don't have a God-free mind and that you are acknowledging God in all of your ways, then I'm telling you, you are not acknowledging God in all of your ways and you are not pursuing the things that He's called you to. It comes down to this. 
This Christian walk is not something you're naturally going to drift into. You must fight. And it is a good fight. And it is a good fight of faith. And He will lead you all the way. So my question to you this morning is very simple. Are you fighting? Are you fighting for worship? Are you fighting to learn more about God, to acknowledge God, to have more reasons to honor Him and give Him thanks? That's the whole reason we come together in Sunday school and study our our Word and the whole reason we come together on Wednesday night and we do the same thing. This is the whole purpose behind it. And so my question for you is that. Are you fighting? Or do you honestly believe that you're going to naturally drift toward holiness? Because you're not.